good Sunday morning. This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts and Culture Magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community, while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. On today's program, I'll take you behind the scenes of a new immersive theatrical production that aims to shed some light on the immigrant experience. We'll hear all about Albany Park Theatre Project's ambitious new production. The dueling critics Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanal will join me to review a new outdoor production of A Midsummer Night's Dream. And later, I'll catch up with the author of a biography that offers an in-depth look at one of today's more enigmatic celebrities, Jeff Goldblum. All that's coming up. Thanks for tuning in for some arts and culture this morning. Residents of Chicago's Albany Park neighborhood have likely walked by 3547 West Montrose many times without giving it a second glance. The three-story cement brick structure has a chiseled exterior that reads Fernstrom Fireproof Storage. Those same residents have probably also recently noticed groups of people lining up and entering the building on certain nights. That's because the warehouse is now the home of a world premiere immersive theatrical production titled Port of Entry. Audience members will come in and then as soon as they come in, I think that they're surprised by the by how big this building is and then seeing like what else is inside. This is Maggie Popadiak. She's the associate director of Albany Park Theater Project and one of nine co-directors working on Port of Entry, the new immersive production that transports audience members from outside a seemingly empty warehouse to inside the homes of immigrants who live in the Albany Park neighborhood. There's like four apartments in this building for very different apartments. Um, They'll be able to travel from bedroom to bedroom into kitchens to be able to hear the stories of of our young people and and our families. Thanks to the Chicago-based Logan Foundation, Albany Park Theater Project, a.k.a. APTP, was able to transform the entire 12,000-square-foot warehouse into a replica neighborhood apartment building. So audiences coming to a port of entry performance aren't walking into a traditional theater. They're being welcomed into the homes of the people who live in the neighborhood. Each night, the APTP cast of young actors guides a small audience through a series of stories set in this fictional apartment building. But the stories are based on the real lives of the people who live in Albany Park. The ambitious project is the latest chapter in an ongoing story APTP has been telling since 1997. 26 years ago actually is the starting point, right? APTP was started by David Feiner and his late wife, Laura Wiley, in a community of immigrants and first-generation folks. So I think the idea of port of entry, even though maybe 26 years ago they weren't talking about port of entry, the idea that we're always going to tell immigrant stories and first-generation stories has been the foundation of the work that we do and will continue, you know, even beyond port of entry, continue to do that work. This is Albany Park Theater Project co-executive director Miguel Angel Rodriguez. He's also one of the co-directors of Port of Entry. The production is the result of a collaboration between APTP and New York-based Third Rail Projects. 
We just loved collaborating with Third Rail Projects. When we saw their show, Then She Fell, in New York almost 10 years ago, we were able to hang out with them afterwards and totally fangirled over them and said, hey, can we do something together? And, and that's how Learning Curve happened. They came to Chicago and saw a show that we did at The Good Men, and then they were like, let's do something together. And that's how Learning Curve was born. 2016's Learning Curve was an immersive production that aimed to bring the halls of a Chicago public high school to life. Learning Curve uh, told the story of students and teachers in, uh, in a public school here in Chicago. And so over the course of a few hours, audience members were in classrooms, in bathrooms, in libraries, hearing you know pieces of a larger story of what it's like to you know, be a student in public schools, right? So that is the stress of uh, fitting in, the the stress that teachers might have of is their job on the line. It really was trying to tell a holistic, you know, interesting story of what it's like to go to school here in Chicago. Learning Curve was a massive success that garnered rave reviews and sold out performances. After the run ended, APTP's creative team began thinking about a new immersive project. It was a success, right? By the time we closed that show, um, one, we realized we didn't have the infrastructure to run a show for longer than we we did. And two, you know, by the time we closed it, we had about 6,000 people on the wait list. So we just knew that we were onto something, right? And then we were like, so what's the next thing we're going to do? And so, you know, I grew up in Albany Park. My mom still lives on Ainsley and Springfield. You know, in that apartment building when we first moved in, there were people from all over the world. My neighbors were, and you know, Chicago has such a segregated history, but Albany Park was the anomaly in the sense that you were living next door to people who were from Laos, people who were from Thailand, people who were from Guatemala, people who fled uh, Bosnia and the genocide. And so, and all of us lived in this apartment building. And I think that 26 years later, my mom's still in that same apartment building, but those families, there's only two original families, one Bosnian family and one Polish family, and then everybody else is white. And the gentrification is very much, you just see the importance of telling stories like this at Port of Entry because we're celebrating the stories of people who've made this home Port of Entry, Albany Park was a Port of Entry uh, neighborhood, and so honoring all these people it was just the chance for us to like, can we do a show that takes place inside of an apartment building, you know, kind of that apartment building that my mom still lives in. And in 2018, we really started with this project. You know, over the last five years, we've done over 2,000 new interviews that are now part of this production. But, you know, I started this by saying that this production is 26 years in the making because a lot of the stories in the show are stories that we've, we've told before in different forms, you know, 26 years ago, 24 years ago, right? And part of what we've done here is pulled from our archives, pulled from our experiences, found new interviews in the last five years to really tell 100 years of immigration history through the eyes of an apartment building. Rodriguez says a number of themes emerged from that research process and a common thread that connected many of the stories. Journey, I think, is the biggest theme here, right? Whether that is, you know, in Puerto Rico, you'll actually get to experience and hear and see firsthand what it's like to leave your country uh, and then travel to the United States. And what are those first instances of culture shock and uh, adapting to a new society, a new, a new way of being? You know, we have multi-generation stories here as well, so you get to see that over the cross of multiple cultures through the perspective of a multi-generational family and how, you know, what does it mean to still be connected to a country you haven't been to in a number of years versus being a young person who was born here who has a loose association with that country and it's more 
how do you stay connected to a country through the food, the language, the rituals that your family brings back, even religion. Port of Entry also tries to tell the story of what it's like to live side by side from folks who are not from your same culture or maybe even generation, but that you have a similar story, right? Whether that is the journey of, you know, leaving one place to come to another, raising children, the struggle of of housing or food insecurity or whatnot. There are a hundred years of storytelling, right, in in this show. And we do such a good job of showing you so many different spokes out of the circle of what it's like to be an immigrant in Albany Park, in the city of Chicago, even sometimes I would argue across this country, right? Those interviews that were referenced are the basis for the stories that are told in Port of Entry. Popadiak says APTP's Young Ensemble did their own ethnographic research conducting interviews within the Albany Park community. It always starts with our young people and it starts within our circle and then it starts to go from the young people. They're like, actually, you should interview my mom. Actually, you should interview my neighbor. Actually, you should interview my friends, blah, blah. You know what I mean? So the collection of stories, you know, we have from our youngest, you know, storyteller being 11 years old to our oldest being, I mean, we've been working on Port of Entry for over five years and a lot of the stories that are in Port of Entry also span from APTP's 26 years of telling stories and so being able to bring in people you know through our ethnographic process you know is just constant snowballing of you should talk to this person you should talk to this person you should talk to this organization so one of the organizations that we also interviewed was the people who work in Albany Park it's called World Relief and they are an organization that helps recent uh, refugees find their home in Albany Park. So there are apartment buildings in Albany Park that are specifically designated. There's some sort of arrangement between World Relief and the landlord to be able to house recent refugees and help them kind of like acclimate to life in America. So there's just constant interviews, constant people being like, you should talk to this person and this person. And so we've been also having people who've been coming to see ABTB plays for 26 years who have lived in Albany Park and have shared stories. So we have stories from somebody who was a refugee of the Holocaust. Their family uh, immigrated. They were survivors of the Holocaust, and they immigrated to Albany Park and made their home here. And that's how far back it goes. Something else to keep in mind, if you're not familiar with Albany Park Theater Project, the company's acting ensemble is largely made up of teens and young adults. ABTP is predominantly a teen ensemble, high school ensemble. And so the way that you join ABTP is that there's no auditions. You kind of just show up and it's either because you're following your latest crush or you find out that we have a kitchen and that we provide meals. Like, I think that one of the things that ABTP did for me when I was young is that I just didn't want to go home. I joined ABTP because I just wanted to be here, make art and learn more about my family, where they've come from and their stories, but also is just the place to escape and just be an artist and to express myself. If you're just tuning in, I'm Gary Zydek. This is the arts section. I'm talking to the creatives behind the Albany Park Theater Project's new immersive production, Port of Entry. As I mentioned earlier, APTP collaborated with New York-based Third Rail Projects to create the production. We are known for making site-specific, immersive, and experiential theater pieces. Our origins come from dance theater, uh, and then we kind of found ourselves pretty early on making performances in public spaces and non-traditional spaces, and that just became something that we were really excited about and very interested in. 
part of our mission is that we like to bring performance to people in different contexts and different locations and push the, the sort of notions of where performance may and may not occur. This is Third Rails Project Artistic Director Janine Willette. She worked with APTP on the 2016 production of Learning Curve and came back to help with Port of Entry. She says one of the challenges the creative team faced was figuring out a way to make audience members feel like active participants and not just witnesses. I think Port of Entry is, is a really different experience, and we spent the whole first workshop period just trying to answer the question of how do we earn the ability as audience to go into the homes of immigrant families, and why are we there, and how do we develop a feeling of belonging for the audience? Because without that, they'll still feel like witnesses, but they won't feel like they're part of it. And so that was our, our first big major question from our end, is how do we design this experience and how do we set up the notion of being welcome? The sense of welcome really starts not only from the confirmation email that you get when you buy your ticket, but it starts that first door that you walk in. The way that you're greeted in the box office, the way you're welcomed into the lobby, the way that you're welcomed again into this, the show, and then how you're welcomed into the first home. And so there's just a series of thresholds and every one of them takes you a little bit deeper into feeling like you belong there. As far as the, the presentation, what is it about the immersive approach that, that resonates so much with people? Because in a way, you could tell this same story, these same stories, in a more traditional setting with the audience seated or the proscenium staging. Obviously, a much different experience. What are some of the things that, that come through using an immersive approach compared to a more traditional staging? On a proscenium, if we were to take some of those stories, you could watch and hear the story. Um, you could have the visual experience of it. But what you don't get to have is the texture, the activity, the engagement, the smells, the action of like hearing a story about Filipino food while you're actually making the food, looking around up close at the set at every single item that, you know, perhaps if you're in that kitchen and you're making food and you see all the things that are on the refrigerator that are stuck up there with magnets and a cupboard opens and you see what's inside of that cupboard. Every single item in that room gives you a piece of that story. And so there's just these incredible layers that you just can't see if you're sitting in the, the seat and looking at a proscenium. You just can't get that level of detail. Being in an immersive environment gives you that 360-degree experience. So you feel like you're not outside looking in at a story, but you're inside, and it's happening around you, and you're a part of it. And I, I think that's the secret sauce. That level of detail will let reference is on full display in Port of Entry. I was able to walk through a couple of the apartment sets created for the production during my visit to 3547 West Montrose, and the level of detail was astounding. Every visible inch of these sets were designed to look like lived-in homes. Just as far as the physical sets, these homes that are now set up in this warehouse, how did the company go about putting those together and getting those small details, right? Yeah, that's a great story. Um, so part of our ethnography work was to go into our ensemble members' homes um, or the family of ensemble members or even, you know, at times the home of one of our associate directors as well, where she grew up, and to hear the stories one, the goal was to hear the stories in the homes in which the stories take place. 
But while we were there, you know, we split up into smaller teams. You know, there was a director, there was from Third Row, from ABTP, a bunch of uh, young ensemble members, as well as our creative team, as you know, the set designer, et cetera, joined us on those visits. And we just took note, took photos. Because the idea here was to try to, I mean, we did do it, right? Not, not the idea, but to recreate for, you know, Chicago apartment buildings. And we're sitting currently in one of them and I'm looking at the floor and I know that this floor when I first got put in was brand new wood and our scenic designers wanted to tell a story, right? The scenic painters wanted to tell a story of what it would it look like to have this floor see multiple years, multiple families wash it and, and move furniture across it. Um, and it really like, you know, that was our goal. Our goal was to make these these as much as our our stories feel lived in we want the spaces the homes to feel lived in as well through objects through the furniture through the use of the paint we want to spend two hours on the paint of this color here because we we're trying to find the right paint color to tell the story of uh, of family moving into an apartment you know from a country that they've been you know to before so when people come here when audience members first see the set they're just taken aback that this wasn't that this isn't a real home we have audience members and even sometimes we have like guests come through and they'll point at some an object and go oh my god my grandma has that right and and that's always been the power of aptb right like we often say that like when you tell your story or you bring in an object or you just share something about yourself somewhere someone else in the circle is going to go oh yeah me too and then that then opens up you know for the possibility of more storytelling which opens up the possibility of collaboration community building etc those sentiments were echoed by some of the teenage cast that's bringing Port of Entry to life. Ari Salgado has been with ABTB for about four years. She plays one of the production's most important roles, the matriarch of the Milagros family in Apartment 3. Salgado says a number of the ideas she brought to the table in the workshopping phase years ago are now in the final production. We are a huge part of the devising part, like the Mexican-American home. There's a bunch of things in there that was like my idea in the sense. The directors are really there to like clean and polish everything up, but really it's like us and our work. For example, the upstairs home, home four, aka the secret home, we don't, I don't know how much we're allowed to say about it, but I did every single summer like workshops for it and like a lot of it was a bunch of me and my peers like thinking and work and I went to watch it and I was like oh my god that's me oh my god that's my my coworker Mule like oh like we literally made this and the teenagers are just a huge part of it a lot of our ensemble members wrote their own scripts with also help from our directors this is Isabel Fiscal the high school senior has the role of the oldest daughter in a Filipino family that's portrayed in Port of Entry my whole scene letters ever sent was written by me and another ensemble member Tamara her whole scene was written by me and her as a joke and then it actually ended up making it as a scene yeah it's just fun because our directors give us a lot of artistic freedom and then they just help us polish it and make our dreams come true with it <laughs> acting period is tough just acting in a, a normal setting is is challenging but in this production with its immersive elements you're acting right next to people right next to audience members what's that like oh it's so fun acting a scene and like being able to closely see audience members faces and reactions to it it's so cool to see because while you're on stage performing 
the lights are dim over there and you can't really see them, but when you're doing immersive theater, you're performing right in front of them and you turn around and you make eye contact and one of them is sobbing next to you and it's you're making a deeper connection that you can't get from seeing someone on a stage far away like you're interacting with them and they're becoming a part of a story it's so fun because everybody takes the stories a different way it's really fun because sometimes audience will throw like curveballs at you like everything is timed to a t obviously like that's kind of how theater works but having them in front of you and being able to ask questions like oh can you translate that like what does that mean and like being able to just like really bond with them the audience really gets comfortable and like feels like they know you and just being able to fully bond with them and like get to talk to them in your character is really cool there's going to be things that don't go out like plan- like as planned and just being able to solve that issue on the spot and like improvise is it's just so cool every night. Like every night, it just feels like a whole new show. Oh, the audience didn't do what they're supposed to do, <laughs> but we did this instead, and that was actually pretty cool. So it's always super fun. And again, to me, it feels a lot more personal. It's one thing reading things on the news. It's one thing reading things on the news and going to a theater where you sit down and there's a stage versus sitting down next to a person who you just realized went through all of this. This kind of just breaks that wall where it's like, no, this is reality. Do either of you think you'll pursue theater or acting after your experience here with Albany Park Theater Project? Acting is definitely not for me. Actually, me and David, we we always joke around about this. Like, it's like, I don't like acting, but I enjoy the message. And just like, this is my, I'm doing my part by like spreading information and like making these stories more accessible. I honestly think I will. I love storytelling. I love creating things. And if I'm not going to be someone who is acting, I'm going to be someone who is directing or telling a story. It's just something I love. It's a way to bring light to different issues and to different stories of the community. And I never thought I would get into acting, honestly. I was just like, whoa, I kind of like this a lot. And now it's something I actually consider I want to do for a future. That was Isabel Fiscal and Ari Salgado, two of the young actors in Port of Entry. The production offers a sense of history. The stories being told span decades, but current events may also be on the minds of some audience members. Migrants have been arriving in Chicago for the past year. Last August, Texas Governor Greg Abbott began busing asylum seekers to sanctuary cities like Chicago as a protest against immigration policies. We were absolutely aware of the news of the the buses of the migrants arriving to Albany Park, to Chicago. There are migrants who are currently being housed at the police station, and that is their home at the moment. And so we're very much aware of this is that this is something that is happening. You come into this knowing what you know if you are informed and know what's happening in this neighborhood, know what's happening in Chicago. People talk about going into Home 3, into the Malagros family, and becoming very emotionally attached to the characters, seeing this woman, this mother, trying to keep her three children sane, fed, clothed, and also knowing that there are these people who are these migrant families that are being placed in, you know, like, what can we do as audience members? What can we do to in, in order to, to help these families? My hope is that by seeing the show, 
you're connecting all of the dots, but you're also activated, that you are also, you know, getting the information. It's like, what can I do to help? What can I be, what can I do to be an active, engaged citizen of this world? Um, being able to connect with our humanity and realize that we have a lot more in common. Rodriguez says the goal of Port of Entry was never to hammer home a simple message, but rather to engage audience members in a way that may evoke compassion and empathy. This is a up-close-and-personal, intimate experience of, and don't get me wrong, we're not trying to teach you what it's like to be an immigrant. APTB has always told stories without beating over your head how to feel, what to think, what to believe. We're sharing our story with you, right? And sometimes those stories happen to be at a dining table or while making a, a sweet Filipino treat in the kitchen. The experiences and the stories themselves are there to transform you, to, to just give you personal, intimate experience with another person, to just feel and be human. That was Miguel Angel Rodriguez. He's the co-executive director of Albany Park Theater Project. We also heard from the company's associate director, Maggie Popadiak. Both are co-directors of the world premiere immersive production, Port of Entry. It's in the midst of what appears to be an open-ended run. However, all the tickets between now and December 16th have been sold. Keep in mind there are only 28 tickets per show and it's a pay-what-you-can model. The good news... The new batch of tickets will be released on September 6th, and it seems like Port of Entry will be around for a while. Go to portofentrychicago.com for all the details, and you can sign up to the waiting list for future tickets. That's portofentrychicago.com. Scarborough Fair Parsley, sage, rosemary and thyme Remember me to one who lives listening to the arts section I'm Gary Zydek Joining me remotely are the dueling critics Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel Good morning Good morning, Gary. Good morning, Gary. So we've had some unpleasant evenings over the past six weeks or so that made staying inside a more attractive option. There was a rash of severe storms, and then we had those poor air quality days with hazy skies. But on those Chicago-area summer nights where the skies are clear and the temperatures aren't sweltering, we all try to enjoy some more time outside. The Oak Park Festival Theater has been drawing local theater fans to its outdoor productions for over 45 years. The company is currently presenting Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream on the grounds of Austin Gardens. Carrie and Jonathan spent some time out there, took in a show. Interested to hear what they have to say. Jonathan, we'll start with you. What did you think? Well, it's a ritual of summer, you know. Uh, Summer in Chicago (laughs) wouldn't be complete, at least not for me, without some Shakespeare under the stars. Uh, And it's a pleasure to get back to the Oak Park Festival Theater. This is its 48th year, which is uh, almost unbelievable. I remember year one. That's right, everyone. I'm 49 (laughs) years old. Um, and you were the best-behaved baby at that right, performance. <laughs> and, you know, Austin Gardens is such a, a lovely venue. You can watch the fireflies 
twinkling in the tall grass at the back as the as the play begins and the sun goes down. There's lots of room to picnic, all that sort of thing. Uh, the Oak Park Festival Theater has a new artistic director, too, who makes his debut with this production. His name is Peter G. Anderson, and his staging is an amusing, gender-twisting version of A Midsummer Night's Dream, which, you know, is Shakespeare's quintessential outdoor play, along with maybe The Tempest and As You Like It. And in both of those plays, and in Midsummer Night's Dream, too, nature and the great outdoors is an escape from the social and legal constraints of urban life, from parents and from government. But, of course, in the Midsummer Night's Dream, there are four young lovers, and when they flee to the woods, and they're not all equally in love, but when they flee to the woods, they fall under the enchantments of the fairy king and queen who rule the woods. And so does Nick Bottom, the village weaver, who famously becomes literally an ass. <laughs> now, in this production, director Anderson casts several men's roles with women and several women's roles with men. So Helena is played by a man. She's one of the young lovers. And also Lysander, played by a woman. He also switches a few minor characters and notably has the fairy king Oberon as the person who falls in love with Nick Bottom when he's turned into a donkey, rather than the fairy queen, as Shakespeare wrote it. Now, this, these changes may disturb purists, but for my money, the truth is they don't make all that much difference. The gender switches are not played as drag exaggerations. The actors play the roles as written, and they don't read or present as particularly LGBTQ in any way. What do you think, Carrie? Yeah, I would say the biggest switch with gender that happens that had the most impact is the idea of who's going to fall in love with the ass. The bottom, as we know, is turned into a donkey. And in, in the original version, this is um, Oberon's way of trying to make uh, Titania uh He's trying to bring her down a peg because he casts, has a spell cast on her that will make her fall in love with the first thing she sees, which happens to be this donkey. And Oberon, Oberon is, the, is the fairy king. Fairy king and, and the fairy queen. His yes. wife yes. is the fairy queen. Yes. And uh, here, uh, Titania turn, is, is the one turning the table. So it's Oberon uh, falling in love with Molly Brennan's bottom, um, so to speak. <laughs> and I thought that was a very clever sort of... Uh, little bit of a power shift, but I absolutely agree with you that the, um, you know, that the, that the uh, cross-gender or the, uh, and some of the actors I think are actually non-binary, um, it elevates these fine actors and doesn't really materially change the themes of the play at all, which is about sort of the quicksilver ways in which people fall in and out of love, as you said, Jonathan, the ways in which the woods work upon us once we're removed from the uh, the constraints of you know the the demands of state and and the nuclear family as it were, um, I I thought it was absolutely delightful. I think it's a very good calling card for Anderson as his first product for his first production at Oak Park Festival. And I, I mentioned Molly Brennan, who might be familiar to some of our listeners from uh, her appearances with House Theater Chicago, the the, the gone but very fondly remembered Five Hundred Clown uh, physical theater and comedy troupe. Um, she's been at the Goodman. So there's a good mix here, I think, of newer people who are relatively new to me, at least, 
on the stage, and then old hands, and not necessarily that they're old, but that they've been around a while. Will Wilhelm, who plays Puck, uh, has just more recently, in, uh, in more recent years, been in residence at the uh, Oregon Shakespeare Festival. They, they are non-binary, and which is a, and it really has a great. They really have a great handle on on the poetry and uh, the sort of inflections uh, for Puck's little aside. So uh, well cast. I had an absolutely beautiful night out there, and as you've mentioned, Gary, we haven't had as many of those as we would have liked this summer, so that certainly helped my mood, but I think a lot of it, too, is down to the fact that it's, you know, an ably constructed comedy that is hard to mess up, and when you add just enough interesting casting and little twists, it'll be enough to make you kind of sit forward maybe a little bit more than you have in the in the past. Yeah. Uh, and I agree with you that uh, Molly Brennan is, is is great fun as Nick Bottom, the, the weaver. She brings uh, all of her rich clowning skills to the role, both vocal and physical. And Will, well, 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 and Will, well, excuse me. <laughs> And Will Wilhelm, uh, playing Puck, as you said, this is the one character who is intentionally uh, a fey and androgynous character, and he also endows the character with uh, a balletic physicality to, uh, to the, the fairy sprite Puck, and that's a good performance, too. Beyond them, Anderson endows the production with a good deal of slapstick action, mm-hmm. especially in the second half after an intermission, when the young lovers meet up and reassemble in various combinations uh, in the forest in the play's second half. It's a lot of slapstick, and it's funny business, which is adroitly played by all. Um, Anderson has edited the play, so it runs about two hours, 20 minutes, including intermission. And his approach really is fairly breezy. He approaches text by emphasizing plain speaking and understanding the lines over the poetry and the play's frequent rhymed couplets, and that's just fine. They're also experimenting this year, I think for the first time, uh, Oak Park Festival Theater is using Sir titles, which are projections mm. of the dialogue, the, the, the Shakespeare's lines, against the top of the scenery. And it's a really good assist, given the acoustical limits of Austin yes. Gardens. Yeah. Yes, the cicadas and the plains, they have their charms, but they do occasionally get in the way of the dialogue. Now, I noticed, because I went on a Sunday evening, so they, because that's an earlier curtain, and I don't know if this will change, as, it, as sadly the nights start coming on uh. darker a little bit sooner, it was mostly through the second half where those those uh, surtitles were visible, but I'm assuming if you go on, on you know one of the nights when it's starting a little later Friday or Saturday that you'd have it through the whole through the whole production. Right. Uh, other than Sunday, I think they were running a uh, 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 maybe a Thursday, Friday, Saturday, but certainly Friday, Saturday performances mm-hmm. begin at 8 p.m. So it's already growing growing dark. So there we have it. As we both said, despite the gender changes, this really isn't a revolutionary take on a Midsummer Night's mm-hmm. Dream, but it certainly is an affable, energetic, and swiftly played version. Uh, great Shakespeare? No. Enjoyable Shakespeare for a summer night? Absolutely. And Austin Gardens, as always, is a treat. Yeah, and I was very pleased in the Sundays that I attended how full it was. It felt fuller to me than I've seen in you know, certainly, I think since the since the uh, pandemic, um, and so it's nice that they have given a you know once again a beautiful location right downtown Oak Park, easy to grab a picnic lunch, a bottle of wine, 
or picnic dinner, I should say, and, and just come on over with your family and spread out on the lawn. Um, there are a few things that are as a reliably enjoyable and simple as that. And I think Peter Anderson, as I said, for his first uh, production as artistic director, really threaded the needle between going for something that's very well-known, very comfortable, but also giving it just enough of a twist to indicate, you know, maybe things aren't going to be done, you know, strictly by the book, as it were, or by the, or by the folio. <laughs> Oak Park Festival Theater's A Midsummer Night's Dream continues outside through August 19th. And before we wrap up, since we're talking about outdoor theater, have either of you had a chance to check out many outdoor productions this summer, or was this your first? Well, you know, since First Folio, well, they closed, but even before First Folio in uh, Oak Brook closed, they had given up their outdoor stage. So there hasn't been a lot. There is Midsummer Flight, and they are bringing their production of Cymbeline, which I've heard is very good, uh, up to my neighborhood. I live in Rogers Park, so I'm hoping to check that out. But um, short answer, no, although I did uh, see the Whiz Walk, which is Theater Y. They are now in North Lawndale. And this is sort of an in, uh, indoor-outdoor. It's uh, their youth ensemble kind of doing their mishmash version of The Wizard of Oz um, and set in the neighborhood. So you kind of move around through, uh, you know, the, the playground of an abandoned public school into a field house. And it's about a little over two hours altogether, and you also get a free, a free dinner at the end of it. So that I would, I would recommend. I think it's only running to the middle of August, however, so... You may want to get in on that quickly, um, but those are always, a, I've done a couple of these, uh, what they call Camino productions with uh, Theater Y, and if you've never been to North Lawndale, it's an interesting neighborhood, and you get to see some of the architecture and parks and things of that nature um, as you take in this show. It's, it's a youth ensemble with um, adult actors in it, so that one I really enjoy, but as far as like a sitting in the park watching a show, no, this has been it for me. I don't know about you, Jonathan, but... Well, let's see. Uh, my my local uh, community organization uh, a few nights ago showed uh, the film version of Mamma Mia in a local <laughs> parking lot. And, uh, I, and, did you, I did, and did you dress up being the did, super trooper that you are? No, I, I, I dressed up as, as an old neighborhood guy going to see it. Uh, but there are a few other uh, outdoor things, and uh, I have seen one. Uh, I think we covered at least one of these when we did our summer preview. Porchlight Music Theater has a one-hour kind of uh, a Broadway hits show. They have been taking to uh, a number of Chicago parks. Uh, they do a 6 p.m. performance. It's free uh, in various parks, uh, and it only runs one hour. They have had to cancel a, num- a number of them because of weather, and some of it related to air quality and smoke. Uh, but I did manage to catch one in a park not far from my 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 home uh, uh, last Thursday night, and it was quite lovely, quite delightful. So porch-like music theaters of bringing Broadway to your neighborhood still has a week or two to run. If you go to their website, porch-like music theater, you can get the full schedule. And the late entry I haven't seen, but for kids, Goodman Theater is presenting a one-hour version of. In My Granny's Garden, mm-hmm. adapted from the kids' book that is going around from park to park also. Um, and they're doing two performances of it at 9.30 a.m. and um, I think 11.30 a.m. Uh, every time they perform. And um, again, if you go to Goodman Theater, to their website, you can find out information about 
in my granny's garden, which is, I think, hands-on. The little ones, and this is for the little ones, uh, I believe are going to actually be able to plant something along the way. Well, and that's a lovely green message as well. You know, we're, we've talked about the, the effects of climate change. I mentioned that Will Wilhelm, who is in Oak Park Festival, had been at Oregon Shakespeare Festival. They've had a lot of problems out there with the wildfires in the Pacific Northwest. But obviously, even if we don't have them raging right at our door, that is affecting the air quality. I've had discussions with some of the, you know, the outdoor theater producers who say it's actually become an issue, and it is part of the calculus. I talked to uh, Belinda Bremner, who is on the board of Oak Park Festival, longtime ensemble member and board member, and she said they've lost four productions already uh, out at Oak Park of Midsummer Night's Dream from either rain or just, you know, smoke the smoke conditions. So. You know, going forward, it's a little bit grim to think about how will outdoor theater survive. You know, you can get more people as patrons, you know, outside. So if you're charging, then that certainly gives you, you know, a little more wiggle room than being in a 50 to 100 seat seat theater. But you are also at greater risk of having to cancel performances because the weather just will not cooperate. So just something for us all to keep in mind. And, you know, as we've been saying all along, Jonathan, theaters. Even ones that have been running as long as Oak Park Festival are still, you know, struggling. Oak Park Festival had a fire in their office space that they lost quite a lot of equipment, their archives a couple of years ago. That was costly for them. So if you are so inclined, even if you paid for a ticket, they all have a little QR code or a collection bucket. And if if, 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 if the spirit moves you, if, uh, you might just want to toss a little bit extra in for some of your favorite favorite companies this year. They, they can definitely use it, and it will not go to waste. I'm sure of that. Yeah, yeah. Well, we should, you know, on historical note, remember that you know, when you know Shakespeare was co-owner of the theater company, the Globe Theater, and the theaters of Queen Elizabeth I's day often were shut uh, because of the plague. And uh, everybody had to go out to the country where they thought they would escape the plague with the clean country, or at least we do not have to you know, <laughs> deal with closing right. down theaters because of plague. Right. You know, there is a point with outdoor theater, too. I think anybody who is still concerned about air quality uh, in the theater because of the pandemic, if it's not being closed, <laughs> if it's not a smoky night, you do get better ventilation outdoors as well. Uh, so that's and, and you can do the, you can do your own little social distancing. It's a little bit easier on the grass than you know in set seats in an inside auditorium. So that's another another factor to keep in mind. Well, I mentioned the outdoor conditions in my intro because well, we don't have a lot of outdoor theater in the western suburbs where I live, especially since First Folio closed. There are several outdoor movie screenings throughout the summer, whether it's through the local park district or a municipality, uh, but a lot of those were, were getting canceled because of the weather or the air quality. And it was something that I really never thought about, but then I kept seeing these cancellations and I started to realize, you know, this summer in particular, things were a little different. And one more thing, uh, something that you mentioned, Jonathan, as far as that Goodman production, as a, as a parent, those early start times are perfect before nap time, that's the time yeah. to go to something <laughs> like that. Okay, Carrie, Jonathan, thanks so much. Oh, you're, you're welcome, Carrie. Always. You're listening to the Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. Superheroes have taken over the Elmhurst Art Museum. The work of renowned comic book artist Alex Ross is the subject of the West Suburban Museum's newest exhibition. 
paintings, giant prints, and life-sized busts of some of the world's most popular heroes and villains are featured in Marvelocity, the art of Alex Ross. Ross, who has some local connections, is among the most well-known comic book artists working today. He's drawn for both major comic publishers, Marvel and DC, over a career that spanned almost 30 years. This exhibit focuses specifically on his work for Marvel, so visitors will see plenty of Iron Man, Captain America, and Spider-Man. I recently visited the Elmhurst Art Museum to check out Marvelocity, and I sat down with the museum's executive director, John McKinnon, to talk about the exhibit. I feel like I've been hearing about this exhibit for a while now. When did you start first thinking about bringing Marvelocity to the Elmhurst Art Museum? We probably started more than a year ago, but really started talking about it probably nine months ago. We have different crowds that come from one show to the next, including our summer audience. And we were really excited about finding something that was family friendly, that was very kind of more popular. We've seen trends of, of people that come, which makes sense, right? People are, are home from school or looking to travel and get out to other towns. Uh, so we've seen a bit more tourism of the things and, and glad to have something that not only is a big draw, but is a potential gateway to introduce, say, young people to an art museum. And so for the uninitiated that maybe aren't familiar with the comic book world, Alex Ross is a renowned comic book artist who has local ties. Absolutely, yeah. So Alex Ross is from the Chicago area. He's quietly work, been working away, mostly does comic book covers, but is known for doing some uh, larger issues you know, for DC and Marvel. Uh, this show par focuses on his Marvel work, and in fact it starts from when he's age of five and then continues through. And we're really excited about not only showing a Chicago-based artist that really has a lot of acclaim in his field. I mean, this guy has so many Eisner Awards and other things, which are specific comic book awards. Uh, and I think there was one fan favorite he award that he won seven years in a row and they had to retire it because, you know, <laughs> they, they just couldn't keep doing it and giving it to him. But no, we're excited about shining a light on, on the artwork that he does that then goes into these comics. You know, he um, has this reputation for combining this kind of action-packed scene with hyper-realism and uh, is classically trained and I feel like there's a lot of different stories and a lot of different things we can do as an art museum to kind of uh, showcase that. And you just alluded to it, but what would you say separates Ross's work from other comic book artists? Some of his work featuring these iconic characters is truly show-stopping, beautiful, which is a word we don't often use with comic books. Is it his technique that sets him apart? I would say it's technical skill, right? He's been called, uh, I've heard him called the Caravaggio of Cape Crusaders <laughs> or the Michelangelo of comic books or all these other things. So, you know, he has this, this style and he has the rendering uh, that really helps characters jump off the page. But he also has this really deep respect and reverence for the characters, for the stories and all the artists that came before him. Uh, he's even done uh, specific odes to Jack Kirby in particular. Um, so I think that those things in combination have really helped make him a fan favorite. McKinnon says the exhibit provides a different lens to see Ross's work. Even comic book fans familiar with his drawings likely have only seen them on the cover or pages of a comic book. The show is surprising because you see drawings that you may have seen reproduced on comic book covers. They look even more impressive in person, but then there are other things that will surprise you, like the work that 
Alex has done with some collaborators to create these life-size life busts of these characters. And you know, he didn't do it solo, he worked with some people that sculpt and create these things, but you can see the level of detail in the sculptures that are very uh, representative of his drawings. Um, these things in combination with his drawings, in combination with his technique, really do make these characters seem more lifelike and more real. And that's pretty much what sets him apart from other comic book artists, right? You might see those artists quickly sketch something or they're on a deadline and they have got to create a comic book and so they don't have the time, but he's really kind of looked at every little detail, maybe made photos, maybe had models staged for him, dressed them up in costume, and really gotten it right. Uh, so it's very impressive to see because of that. Marvelocity originated at the Best Bauer Dunn Museum in Libertyville back in 2019. It's traveled to some institutions in other states in the intervening years and is now at the Elmhurst Art Museum. Yes, the Marvelocity show has traveled the nation and has come back to the Chicago area. Uh, it was several years ago, and it feels like even maybe a decade ago because of COVID. Yeah. So we're uh, excited to show it to our audiences, which are very different than theirs, but also you know bring back the show and um, you know do some other things with it. Uh, we've had public art installation done by eight area artists and youth groups um, that is free, open to the public outside. And, uh, and has a really great audio guide uh, by the artists. Uh, we also have family weekends with uh, different uh, comic book workshops and comic book uh, drawing activities. And we'll also do something that kind of takes a page out of his book and do a specific costumed character life drawing session with a live model. Uh, so that you know, is something really cool and we're looking forward to and also showcases some of our in-house talent from our uh, teaching instructors and artists that work here. Obviously, the art is the centerpiece for something like this, but there's also a lot of additional programming that's being offered. How important is that additional programming when you present an exhibit like this? I think that whenever you have a show, people will say, oh, I'd love to see that. But then when there is an event that is attached to it, it's even, it sweetens the deal, they, that they're even more motivated to come. So that's when we'll see a lot of families come for family day and we just say, you know, it is kid friendly, come on out. Um, so it sends a different message and, and, you know, does bring in good crowds. The exhibit opens with some examples of his work from when he was a kid, so I'm guessing his family saved those? Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, I, it makes me feel bad about throwing my kids' drawings away. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but um, uh, whether it was him or his family or you know something, someone saved these things, and so it really starts at the age of five. And there's a good gallery wall of some of them when he was a child uh, that are really impressive in and of, in of themselves, um, and then continues right through his through his career and has some highlights uh, up to um, 2018. And I think that that is inspiring for different groups. For instance, we have a very popular summer camp, and these summer campers have come in and made their own drawings of Spider-Man at the ages of seven or five or other things. And then uh, it's, it's amazing where it kind of comes full circle because Alex talks about being inspired by a cartoon of Spider-Man when he was age five or so, doing lots of drawings, immediately feeling like I have to make my own of this and telling these stories. And now his show is up and another generation is coming and seeing that and being inspired by it. So it's really cool to see. 
I often, when I interview artists of any type of discipline, I'll ask when they realize maybe they had a talent or aptitude. You can tell like his nine-year-old crayon drawing that there's something there. Right, right. It's amazing, yeah. That's John McKinnon. He's the executive director of the Elmhurst Art Museum. Marvelosity, the art of Alex Ross, is on display for another two weeks through August 20th. You can find more information at elmhurstartmuseum.org. Listen, if there's one thing the history of evolution has taught us, it's that life will not be contained. Life breaks free, it expands to new territories, and it crashes through barriers painfully, maybe even dangerously, but life uh, finds a way. You're listening to WDCB. I'm Gary Zydek. This is Jeff Goldblum playing piano on his 2018 jazz album, The Capital Sessions. But most of the world knows him for his acting, starring in giant blockbusters like Jurassic Park and Independence Day, as well as lighthearted fare like Igby Goes Down and the Grand Budapest Hotel. And many of us of a certain generation remember him from his work in the 1986 remake of The Fly. You tell me. Am I different somehow? Is it live or is it Memorex? Goldblum continues to appear in big movies. He was in the latest Thor and Jurassic Park sequels. He also has his own show on the Disney Plus streaming platform. The Pennsylvania native is consistently praised in men's fashion magazines for his sartorial choices. Plus, there's his whole jazz career. His debut album was number one on the Billboard Jazz Charts the year it came out. The non-traditional career and quirky charm of the 68-year-old performer are the focus of a new biography titled Because He's Jeff Goldblum, The Movie's Memes and Meaning of Hollywood's Most Enigmatic Actor. I recently caught up with author Travis M. Andrews to find out what it is about Mr. Goldblum that's made him such a compelling celebrity over the past four and a half decades. Even before I, I picked up Because He's Jeff Goldblum in my head as I was like getting ready for it, I was thinking of comparisons between him and, and Bill Murray, who has like a special mm-hmm. cult following here in Chicago, and then you, you draw some parallels between the, the two. What are some of the, the biggest similarities and differences between the two from your point of view? I think that, um, well, first off, let me say, I, I do remember, I used to live in Chicago, and I remember the, the Bill Murray love <laughs> many years ago. But I think that they both, in their own ways, took advantage of the internet. I think that they are two actors who are kind of past their, their heyday, past their, their, you know, necessarily their, their prime in terms of their biggest movies, but they both became memes, and they both kind of lived the second life online. Uh, Bill Murray seems to do it in more intentionally. He likes to, you know, sneak up behind people famously and say, hi, I'm Bill Murray. No one will ever believe you and walk away, right? He loves to, to crash bachelor parties, as he don't do, and the video goes viral. Goldblum, on the other hand, seems not like he's not seeking attention, but it doesn't feel as, as kind of specific and as, as, as planned, I suppose. Uh, people, whereas Bill Murray turns himself into a meme, Goldblum was turned into a meme by other people, and he seems to have embraced it, especially with his crazy fashion uh, choices, wearing these crazy 
Prada zebra print bodysuits and things like that. But, you know, I, I feel like Goldblum became a meme before we even had memes, if that makes any sense. Yeah, and you write about this more in depth in the book, but do you get a sense of when that started to shift, when he started to embrace kind of that Goldblum character? So in the book, I make the argument that it's a little-known movie called Pittsburgh. Uh, it was a half-documentary, half-mockumentary, part-fiction, part-real uh, movie that's incredibly funny uh, that followed Goldblum at the height of his powers, going back to his hometown of Pittsburgh to be in a, a local production of The Music Man. And uh, the best part was the director of The Music Man did not want Jeff Goldblum to be in his play. <laughs> but the, the Playhouse was like, he, we, he's a famous movie star, we can sell tickets, like put him in this play. So the movie kind of follows him going back home to Pittsburgh and seeing how people react to him and what it's like. And I felt like that movie was the first time he said, oh, I, I can play with my celebrity. I can play with my kind of character here. And ever since then, I feel like directors often want him to just be himself in a movie. I think about Thor Ragnarok a lot, where Taika Waititi said, you know, just be Jeff Goldblum, but you're in a Marvel movie. And <laughs> he did exactly that. Right, right. We have some jazz programming here on the station. And, you know, I remember a few years ago, yeah, when I saw he was out touring and his jazz, his album was like number one on the jazz charts. Was that something from your research? Did you find out was playing jazz and like performing as a jazz artist? Was that something on his to-do list or how did that come about? So he has loved, uh, he, he fell in love with jazz music when he was a teenager and he got lessons around Pittsburgh. Uh, <laughs> I actually love this. Uh, as a 15, 16 year old, he would call bars in the area and ask if they needed a piano player, not giving away his age. And if anyone said, yeah, we actually are looking for one, he'd show up and then be like, well, you're, you're 15, I don't, <laughs> I don't know if you can play here. But he's always loved jazz, and actually for the past 30 or so years, he has played a weekly show in Los Angeles um, at a small club that people can go see. He just never released an album in 2016, until 2016. And even then, he didn't seem necessarily, like, he, he had to be convinced that this was a good idea to release an album. He was, uh, he was precious about putting uh, his music out and, and making sure it happened in the right way. So a lifelong jazz fan, and that's, that's another thing I find interesting, because I feel like I feel like in the mid-90s, when he's this huge star, he could have, you know, put out a record and everyone would have bought it just because of who he was. And instead, he waits till uh, 2016 to, to do it. Here's a classic Jeff Goldblum take on jazz lingo from an appearance on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. I got jazz uh, enthralled. Did you pick up jazz lingo? Do you like the, are you a hip cat? Daddy well, I'm not a hip cat daddy -o. No, I don't, I don't talk so like that. I, 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 you are not as hip as you are. My friend Peter Weller, who kind of started the band with me, talks like that all the time. He says, oh, yeah, I knew it from Jump Street. You know what that means? Jump Street. What does that mean? Well, from the very beginning, yeah, the I beginning. think, or from maybe yeah. way back. Yeah, from Jump John Street, from the very start of it. Travis M. Andrews is the author of the book, Because He's Jeff Goldblum, and it's available everywhere books are sold. And that's going to wrap up this edition of the Arts Section. But remember, you can always find more arts and culture by visiting the show's website, theartssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features, 
available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the program. My name is Gary Zydek. I hope you'll join me again next Sunday morning at 8 a.m. right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM for another edition of the Arts Section. Until then, I hope you have a great week. Thanks for listening. Thank you.